0: I'm kicking off Summerfest tonight, and I know the theme is the miracles of Christ. We're going to look at a particular miracle in John chapter 5. And before I jump into that, I want to give you a bit of a preview of how I would have come to this particular text over 10 years ago when I thought that I was saved and a Christian, but I was not. I thought I knew the gospel, and I thought I understood God and Jesus Christ and faith but I had really no clue and it was this particular miracle that opened my eyes to the true gospel and to who Jesus was and so much more about what we understand here in the Christian faith. All of the miracles that Jesus did, He did with purpose. Every single one of them had an underlying message. He never just healed to heal. He never just healed to put on a show. He didn't even heal just because He felt compassion for people. There was always a purpose behind the power of Jesus Christ when He healed the sick or opened the eyes of the blind. And when I came to this particular text, I at the time believed in what you might call the prosperity gospel, or maybe you've heard of that before. It's the idea that if you have enough faith or you follow Jesus, You are going to be happy, healthy, and wealthy. Just to give you a fast-track, Cliff Notes version, I'll drop a name for you. His name is Joel Osteen. Maybe you've seen him on TV. He's got a big smile, great hair, amazing suits, and he spits out one-liners. They have got an automated machine now that will spit out Joel Osteen one-liners. He's like a a walking fortune cookie. He sounds amazing, and he makes God and the gospel sound amazing. And I believed in that system that if I believed in Jesus, and if I had enough faith and I mustered up enough faith, that Jesus would heal every disease, that His will was always to make you wealthy, to give you the desires of your heart, anything you dreamed of, anything you wanted. He would do for you if you just believed. A lot of people got hurt in that belief system. The natural question maybe that you might ask, I certainly didn't and then eventually did, is so if people get sick, or if they tragically lose a child, or if one of their children gets sick, or if they're not happy and their marriage isn't great, if they're not wealthy, what's wrong with their faith? Maybe they just don't believe enough. The problem isn't God, the problem is Then, I approached this particular miracle so sure that if you were sick and if you were poor and if you had problems in your life, you were the problem. Your faith was just too small. And if you had more faith, well, maybe you'd have what you wanted. In John chapter 5, I want you to pick up the story with me. In verse 1, the writer says, After these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. John is explaining the journey of Christ through his ministry. It's still pretty early on. John the Baptist has been the guy who said, Hey, I'm not the Christ, but I want to point the way to the Christ. This one is coming. He has power. He is so much better than me. While Jesus comes on the scene, He begins to do miracles, and there's a lot of attention around His ministry. There's a buzz. He has done some incredible things, including healing a nobleman's son. The Samaritans are all talking about Him because He basically read a woman's mail, having never met her, told her everything she had ever done. He clearly has this power to see into people's lives, and he has the ability to breathe life into things that are dead. And he comes to, in verse 2, a particular pool. John says, now, there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, and it has five porticos. There's a, a Jewish celebration happening at the time. A lot of people are in Jerusalem. There's a lot of foot traffic. And at this particular pool, in verse 3, it says, In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered. All people that I used to think should easily get their healing if they just believe in Jesus and have enough faith. In some of your Bibles, you'll see a notation inserted not in the earliest manuscripts, but later on by scribes who inserted this idea. It was a tradition, a bit of a superstition. And it says, waiting for the moving of the waters, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then was first after the stirring up of the water would step in and they would be made well from whatever disease that they were afflicted with. So there was this idea that this angel would come down and stir the water and the cripple and the lame and the blind. They would try to get to the water first. And if they just touched it and got there, they would be the one who would be healed. And so you got to picture it like the scene you might find in a hospital waiting room. Sick people all over, waiting to see the doctor, waiting for an answer. That was the scene. In verse 5, John highlights a certain man who was there, and he's a bit of a central character here. A certain man was there who had been 38 years in his sickness. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, Jesus said to him, do you wish to get well? What a question. Jesus, the one who can heal the sick and already has, he can clearly turn water into wine, he can prophetically see into the lives of people, comes and asks this man, do you wish to get well? Why this man? we're not told. Perhaps he had extra faith. Maybe he was extra special. A particular example that Jesus would use to show people if you just acted more like this guy, then you'd be fine. Your life would be fixed. You'd be healed. You'd have what you want. No. Look at verse 7. The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. He doesn't even give it more than a second, and he's just complaining. Jesus is right in front of him. You'd think the man's first response would be an emphatic yes, of course I want to get well. Let's do this. Touch my head. Speak the word. Whatever you've been doing, do it for me. His response reveals both hopelessness and ignorance. See, he had been in his condition for so long that he basically thought, well, that's the way it is. And there's only one way out of this, and I've got to do it. I've got to crawl my way to the water, and if I don't make it, I don't get the healing. But if I would just get there and do enough and work hard enough and beat others to it and exert my best effort, well, then maybe, just maybe, I would finally be able to walk. It's been 38 years. He's hopeless, but also ignorant because he has no idea who is standing in front of him. The man who asked him the question is the man who can solve his issue. I wonder how many people today feel the same way. Maybe you're that way, in that position where in your life you feel hopeless. You are in a position where it seems hopeless. You can't get out of it. You can't do enough to change or turn it around you try and you try and you try and eventually you just lose hope. You lose faith. You lose the excitement and the hunger for life and the energy and the motivation with comes, that comes with believing that there might be hope. Hopelessness is just the worst. When people lose hope, They lose everything. They lose perspective. They can't see it anymore. And often, maybe you struggle with this. I'm sure all people do, where you begin to complain and you begin to murmur about all the things that are wrong in your life. And somebody comes over to try to encourage you and you just brush them off. Why? Because you can't see it. Why? Because it's been so long. A lot of people feel that way about their marriage. Well, they'll just never change. So I won't bother trying. Some people feel that way about their financial situation. It's always been this way. Some people feel that way about their goals in life. The mountain's just too high. I can't get there from where I am. But other people, they don't maybe struggle with hopelessness, but they struggle with ignorance. They actually think, and maybe this is you, that if you do enough, you'll get there. And whatever there is, we don't often know. I have this older, wiser friend who told me once, and maybe this will be helpful advice for you. He said, hey, there'll be a lot of situations in life where you think, if I just get there, if I just make it there, then, and you fill in the blank, he said, let me just tell you, take it from an old guy, there's no there, there. Oh, if I just had her. Oh, if I just had him. If I just had that job. If I just had more money. If my family would just be this way. If she or he would just act this way. If my boss would just recognize me. If people would just this. If I could finally that. If I got there, then I would. Friend, there is no there, there. What that is, is ignorance. You don't know yet. And maybe tonight is the first time that hits you, that you can try all you want to turn your life around. And you can muster up all of your courage and all of your effort and your greatest so-called strength to try to get there until you realize who is standing in front of you You don't even know what he can do. This man hears the words in verse eight from Jesus: "Arise, take your pallet, and walk." And immediately the man became well. Immediately, he takes up his pallet. And he begins to walk around with it like it's a trophy. Just imagine somebody just parading around with their wheelchair, throwing their crutches over their shoulders and walking around immediately, no fanfare. He didn't have to do what I used to think if people gave enough money to the church, if they did all that they were told, followed all the rules. Then God would do something for them. You'll hear that a lot from TV preachers. They'll say, they'll say, "You know, God can't do anything with what you won't give Him." As if God were a puppet and man were puppeteers, and we do whatever we want, and then God just sort of dances to whatever rhythm we invoke Him to. That is the way so many preachers present God. And so, so many people think, well, I just got to do this, and then I'll get God to do that. If I do this, then He will. Jesus enters the scene. He doesn't even engage the man's complaint. He just says, arise. His power on display. His sovereignty on display. It's instant healing. You know, I remember when I read that for the first time, it, it really stuck out to me. I had not really spent time studying it. That word immediately just hit me because I grew up in the prosperity gospel and my uncle was some faith healer and I used to watch people. He would bring them up and lay hands on them and, and claim that they were healed. And the people were always limping still. <laughs> and I remember one situation in particular I had a lot of family it was like a family business and so I worked in it and it was pretty shady we flew on a Gulfstream jet and stayed in the nicest hotels in the world and raked in millions of dollars and it wasn't from legitimate business it was from people's donations and we sold them this bag of goods that if you give us all of your money, your best financial offering, then God will heal you. And so people would come who were really, really sick to these services. And we would pack out stadiums, every kind of basketball or hockey arena you can think of, loaded with thousands and tens of thousands of people coming to get healing. And they would come up and line up on each side. And they would come up for prayer, but you vetted them first to make sure that it would be good for TV. And time and time again... They would be limping still. And perhaps the faith healer would say, we just need to pray more. Everyone just lift up your hands and pray more. But other times, it was so obvious that the people were in physical pain still that my uncle or another family member would say... Now, I know some of you are nervous because they're limping, but just imagine if you were in a wheelchair for 30 or 40 years. Those muscles have atrophied. You'd be limping too, and nobody got it, because I don't think too many people were reading the Bible back then. But if you look at this text, you see a particular word that absolutely obliterates that kind of theological position immediately. It doesn't say, and the man began to limp around, dragging his pallet behind him. Immediately, the man became well, and he took up his pallet and began to walk. There's other examples in the New Testament. We don't have time to go through them all, but there's another instance in which the Bible says the man was walking and leaping and praising God. When Jesus heals, it's all the way. When he showcased his power, it was so obvious. This is the real Jesus. This is the Jesus who can set you free from whatever is keeping you in bondage. He's the real Jesus. And then John records this interesting Fact. He says in verse 9, now it was Sabbath on that day. This is a huge clue into the point of this story. The Sabbath was one of those Jewish days that the religious leaders protected very strictly. Now the Sabbath is good. It's good for rest, it's good for worship, it's good for acknowledging God. God worked six days in creation, He rests on the seventh. The Sabbath is good. But these religious leaders had added so many things to the Sabbath. They had created their own religious system. And if you study this, you'll find there were some ridiculous man-made additions to the law. I get a kick out of these, although I'm sure the people back then weren't enjoying it. They had added so many do's and don'ts that God had never intended that they had turned their religious system into nothing more than legalism. If you follow these rules, if you do all these things, then you're righteous and good. If you don't, then you're not the idea of no building on the sabbath like no working they took further in one particular jewish writing called the mishnah you have the talmud and the mishnah but you don't need to worry about those names it's just ridiculous what they put in there you are not allowed to spit in mud on the sabbath Because if you spat, some of you are already getting this. If you spat in mud, you would make clay. And if you made clay, you were making bricks. And if you made bricks, you were building. So no spitting in the mud. There was another one, no carrying on the Sabbath. You couldn't do anything. Your ox could fall in a ditch, break its leg, and be dying in your field, and you couldn't do anything about it. So many things were extra. One time Jesus' disciples got in trouble because they were walking through a field. They were hungry. They grabbed some heads of grain, and it was spraying the seed everywhere. The Pharisees got mad. They said they were farming. This is the weight of the religious system. So understand that when John says, now it was Sabbath on that day, he's making a mockery of religious people who make Jesus, God, and religion, and faith into what God has never intended it to be. And that's something some of you need to realize, that your beliefs and your worldview aren't necessarily always shaped by God. God. But there are man-made systems. There's man-made weights. Many people, I have a dear, dear person in my life who I love very much, and they still don't want to come to church, and they don't want much to do with faith. And the reason for that is people hurt them, and religious systems hurt them. And they say, you know, I put a lot of faith in those people, and they let me down. And my line to them is always the same, that even though people have let you down, your faith shouldn't be in people. Even though people will let you down, God never will. So many people add to what God has never said or add to God's word things he's never said. And so John makes sure everybody knows it was Sabbath on that day. Jesus healed, calls the man to carry his pallet and walk. And in verse 10, here come the Jews, they're mad. Therefore, the Jews were saying to him who was cured, it's Sabbath. It's not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he answered them when they had said, basically, who, who said you could do this? You're in trouble. He says, he who made me well was the one who said to me, take up your pallet and walk. In other words, I didn't do anything wrong. I'm just the healed guy. In verse 12, they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your pallet and walk? These guys are so blind, they're not even aware or they don't even care that this man who was crippled for 38 years is a walking miracle. But he who was healed in verse 13 did not know who it was for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. The religious leaders did such a good job controlling people with their whole idea of God, with their false additions to faith. But on this occasion and on so many more, Jesus did what he always continued to do, which was show them his power cannot ever be stopped. He heals him. The man doesn't even know who Jesus is. Was. I remember sitting in my study. I was already a pastor. I thought I was saved. I thought I was very religious, very impressive to God. And I was studying to preach this. And I remember things just sticking out to me that I had never seen before. Any of you ever experienced that? You're reading the Bible, you go, Oh, I've always been there. I looked at the text. Having grown up in a belief system that shaped my entire worldview, I believed that I was in complete control. I believed that faith was just a mechanism for getting God to do whatever I wanted. And again, the only reason people were sick or poor is because they were the problem. They just didn't have enough faith. If people would just have enough faith and just give money to the church and just do all the right things, then they wouldn't be in their situation. My entire view was twisted, and I was so blind. To the real Jesus. And I was about to preach out of the Gospel of John, and I began studying this, thinking it would be just another passage about healing. First thing that stuck out to me was that Jesus only healed one man out of a multitude. That really messed with my beliefs. I thought, He only picked one. Why didn't He pick them all? And and then what was it about this one that made him the right choice, the best choice? Nothing. Jesus singles out this one man for no reason except because he did. Which immediately messes with so many people's version of God. If you were to say, that God picked him because he was tall, good-looking, athletic, rich, all of those things. Most people go, I get it. But for no reason, well, then there's only one explanation. It is that Jesus is a sovereign Lord. He is a ruler. But now we have a big dilemma Because when someone is a sovereign, we have to decide, will I bow and submit to that sovereign? Or do I prefer a different version that is a little more controllable for my human mind? He's a sovereign healer. I thought that was interesting, but maybe just different. So I moved on and I got to the word immediately. And that continued to be like cracks in the dam as I thought, well, that's just a little different immediately. I had never seen an example of immediate, full healing like that. Organic, miraculous, couldn't walk. Now I can, and I'm not just limping. I'm carrying my palate. My strength is back after all those years. Jesus' healing ministry and His power seemed genuine, more genuine than anything I'd ever seen. But the truth that really got me was when the Pharisees questioned him. And John says that the man didn't know who it was who healed him. I didn't have what I call, I didn't have an envelope for that. You know like filing systems? Some of you are real left brain, like to put everything where it goes. I couldn't put that one anywhere. I kept thinking to myself, if he doesn't know who Jesus was, how did he have enough faith to get his healing from Jesus? If he didn't have any clue who he was, and more than that, he's just a complainer, which I believed if you were negative and you didn't have enough faith and and you were complaining and whining, that God would surely overlook you. And if you got around those kind of people, then you would actually, you could lose your healing. And Jesus just heals him anyway. He doesn't know who Jesus was. The reason is so simple. Why did Jesus heal on the Sabbath? Why did Jesus select just one? Why was it a man who had no clue who he was, and he did it anyway? Because Jesus was showing everyone that he is the Son of God. In today's vernacular, he was putting on display that he does whatever he wants. That is a version of God that American Christians or American religious conservatives and Americans in general loathe. Because we have an authority issue. And there's a lot of good about our country. We're rebellious by nature. The pilgrims, we stand for our country, we fight for our country, all those are good things. But friend, let me tell you, for all of your conservative values and all of your personal convictions and all the things that you live for in America, you love and we wanna vote for and we wanna work hard for, there is one that you have to make a decision whether or not to bow to. There is one sovereign who you place everything before Every desire, every ambition, every conviction, every emotion, every thought and opinion and preference, there is one. And I'm here tonight to tell you, if you do not submit to this one who does as he pleases, as a sovereign savior and healer, you are both hopeless and ignorant. Because like this man, you can have your physical healing. You can have a better life. But if you do not have a spiritual healing, a transformed heart and open eyes to who Jesus really is, then all you got is a healing on your way still to hell. You need to know who he is and surrender your life to him. He is the ruler, the sovereign, the king of all kings. And that's what he was showing here. And like this man, you may not think you're exactly the right candidate for Jesus to do something with or for. I'm sure there's somebody here tonight that thinks, I'm way too far gone to save. I'm too sinful. I've done too much. I I just am not going to ever be good enough. I'm not a candidate for mercy, compassion, love, or salvation. Friend, you think too highly of yourself. There is no one too far gone. He is a greater Savior than your greatest sin. I have a dear friend that I invite to church many times over. He is a confessing Roman Catholic, although he would call himself a recovering one or a bad one. I invite him to church periodically, and his response is always the same, and mine is always the same. I say, Matt, come to church this Sunday. He says, no, I hate myself enough already. And he says, remember, I'm Catholic. See, many Roman Catholics experience the crushing weight of having to do so many things to make God save them, but even worse, to make God keep them saved. Imagine a God who can't keep you, and He can't save you. He's not God at all. The only God who can save and keep you saved is the God of the Scriptures, the Jesus that we see Who doesn't need you to do anything to become good enough to save or to stay saved? He does it all. You're the beggar. You're the cripple. You're the complainer. You're the whiner. You're the weakling. You'll never make it. You never can. You never will. Good, because he can. The only thing you contribute to your current spiritual state Is your sin. That's it. That's what you bring to the table. You know what God wants more than anything? For you to give up trying to be good enough for Him to save you. This miracle is in John's gospel because John has one purpose. He writes all of this and he says it time and time again so that you would believe. And tonight, you've got an opportunity once again If that's you, to think about that question. Do you believe? Will you believe? And maybe I'd add another question. Will you stop trying to save yourself and surrender your life to the only one who can? Through this miracle, every bankrupt belief system is exposed. Every shallow human effort is made clear for what it is, it's powerless. But he's not even there just to heal the man's ailment, but again to offer an eternal solution, and that's where we'll land the plane with the story. Look at what Jesus says to him in verse 14. He comes back around. Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, behold, you become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse may befall you. Jesus doesn't heal and run. He comes back, seeks the man out, and issues something more gracious than the physical healing. This is the offer of salvation. He implies that Your 38 years as a cripple is nothing compared to eternity in hell if you continue in your sinful, unrepentant life. I believe this is what most of us need to hear time and time and time and time again. That even if you have every physical need you could ever want, There is only one thing you need, and it is spiritual. That if you're a parent in the room right now, and you imagine giving your kid all the best things, setting them up with a great life, and you think all that you've worked for and all that you've done, all that you've sacrificed is just to give them a better life, and they end up with the American dream, but they don't have this Jesus I am so sorry for you, but you have failed to give them the one thing they will need when the American dream is over. Give your children Jesus. Surrender your life to Jesus. If you had nothing but you have Him, you have everything. If you have everything but you don't have Him, you really have nothing. This is why Paul the Apostle, a man who had a lot going for him, says, I count all things as loss compared to knowing Christ Jesus. Why? Because he had a lot going for him, but he didn't have Christ. And once he knew Christ, he came to realize everything else fades away except the Lord. And so Jesus even comes to a man who he just healed graciously, who's having the best day of his life in 38 years and says, hey, don't forget, you still don't have the thing you need the most if you go on living the way you have been. Do you have that one thing you need? Do you have faith? Not a faith that musters up enough of you to make God do anything, but a a beggar's faith, even a weak faith just to believe in Christ. You know that's what faith means in the Bible. There's a a fancy Greek word for it, but I like the word picture. It just means to throw yourself upon someone or something. Have you thrown your life upon him? All your best, all your worst, all your fears, all your confidences. Have you thrown your whole life, all that you are on him? The Bible says that is the only way to be saved. You and I, we are sinners. We are completely unable to save ourselves. The Bible teaches, whether you like it or not, that every one of us came into this world as sinners. We are stained and marked by original sin, and we are dead in that sin. Every one of us have fallen short of the glory of God. You can do nothing to solve the issue of your heart. There is only one who can. The Bible also says that God, being rich in mercy, chose to send his son to die in your place. If you've ever wondered, why did he have to come and die? Why does everyone say Jesus died on a cross? Because God's standard is perfect, he is holy, and he is just. He made the law, and the law is this, that sin must be punished. And the wages of sin, the Bible says, is death. But so that you didn't have to die and you didn't have to experience his wrath because he's loving, even when you were dead in your sin, and I was dead in my sin, and you were not lovable, and you weren't very pretty spiritually, you weren't much to look at, he sent his perfect son to live a perfect life and to die a death that would redeem you, the imperfect sinner. And now when God the Father looks at you, He doesn't see someone who the roof of the church is going to cave in on if you walk through the doors. He doesn't see your past. He doesn't see who you were and all the messes you've made. He sees His Son. That's what we call in theology the imputed righteousness of Christ. It just means that God has taken the righteousness of his son, and he's put it on you, a filthy sinner. And now all he sees is what we sing about, that sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. You could be the worst sinner in the room tonight. And all God sees, if you'll come like a beggar in faith and throw your life upon Christ, all God will see is a pure white canvas, yet painted red with the blood of his son. That's what he sees. You are made perfect because of Christ. And just like the cripple did not deserve what Jesus did for him, if you think that is just too good, that is too free, that's too easy, that's something I could never deserve, welcome to the club. It wouldn't be mercy if you deserved it. It wouldn't be grace if you had done anything to earn it. The word grace in the Bible, it means unmerited favor. It means that God looked upon you with a special choice for no reason at all except because He is sovereign, He's loving, and He wanted to. The only response for those who have been saved is to say, Hallelujah, what a Savior! All glory and honor be to him that he would love me and die for me and save me. And the only response that I would ever want for you who would say, I don't know where I would spend eternity. I don't really know this Jesus that you've preached. I've got versions of him. I've got ideas of him. I've got some things I'm trying to do to make myself better. But this Jesus you've talked about, I don't have that Jesus. The only thing to do tonight is to confess your sin and come like a poor beggar with nothing to offer. That's what he wants because that is the kind of faith that says only you are the one who can save me. God is not impressed with strong people. God is not moved by the mighty. The Bible says without faith, it's impossible to please God. That is the only way that your life will ever change, your heart will ever change, anything will ever change. But the most important thing, that your eternity would change. Many people think they only live once. You will live twice, here on earth and once in eternity. And I can assure you, no matter how great a life you live here, if you don't have Christ, You've never lived your best life. You've not even lived that which is life indeed. And if you are a Christian and you have a great life, it still pales in comparison to what awaits you in eternity. For some of you, tonight is a great reminder that you never graduate from the gospel. And over the course of these four weeks, every single night is a reminder that you never get over the gospel. You need the gospel every day. I need the gospel every day because you sin and I sin every day. But for some of you, these nights are an opportunity to realize that until you surrender your life to Jesus Christ for salvation, you'll never have peace. You'll never have joy. You'll never have true healing, but that gift is available to all who would believe.